good to be with you this morning. My name is Nick. For those who don't know, um, I have the honor of being the counseling pastor here at Solid Rock and just a member of this church. And uh, it's an exciting time to be with you guys as we continue through Acts in this Unstoppable Church sermon series. Um, we have been looking at what God has been doing uh, through the ministry of Paul, through the church, and, and we're coming to this tension climax of all that has been building up, right? So we've been following Paul and his missionary journeys. We have been following Paul uh, going through these tribulations of going into these cities. I mean, the guy's been beaten up a lot, folks. I mean, at one point they beat him up so bad they thought he was dead, and yet he popped back up outside of the city and walked back in. It hasn't been the most glamorous vacation anybody could ever want. And so as we think about these things and we think about Paul leading up to his arrival here in Jerusalem, and we've seen all the things that have been coming, one of the things that we've seen over and over again is this warning, this inevitable suffering that is coming for Paul. And at first it was this, hey, Paul, in every city, be, on the, be aware. In every turn, be aware. But now we, we look at last week and we see now we know where it is. We know it's the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to be in Acts 21, starting verse 17. But I want to go back to Acts 20, verse 22 and 24, because this is where we've been coming from to show where we're going to arrive. And 22 says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There's two things in that passage that's going to help us move forward. Is one is that these afflictions await me. He's constrained by the Holy Spirit. He has the understanding. The reality of what's about to happen is upon him. And he knows that afflictions are awaiting him, the suffering that's inevitable. And the second part of that at the very end of 24 is the reason why. It's so that he may testify to the gospel of grace of Jesus. See, there's, there's two things that we're going to see that go hand in hand. is this, this idea of suffering and this idea of suffering for the gospel of Christ. And we're going to see how they go hand in hand for Paul as we move forward. Because see, his main purpose in going to Jerusalem is not for political gain or for political correctness or public affirmation or fame or fortune. It's for one thing and one thing only. And that thing is to present the gospel of grace to those who do not know. And so as we see Paul moving forward, even last week when Jason was talking to us in Acts 21, that the prophet comes to Paul and he says, hey, give me your belt, which is a normal conversation you have with somebody, correct? He says, give me your belt. And so Paul gives him his belt and he binds him up and he says, listen, the man who owns this belt is going to be bound up like this in Jerusalem. The Jews are going to give you over to the Gentiles. And so the reality of what's happening, the affliction that waits has become even more reality, even to the fact that the people are pleading with Paul, don't go, don't do it. They're trying to save him. They're trying to get him out of it, even to the point that Luke and the people that are traveling with Paul are even like, uh, you know what, dude? Like, I really think you should listen and really reconsider this trip to Jerusalem now that we know what's going to happen. And just like last week, we see that Paul's response is let the Lord's will be done. 
So we see the affliction. We see his calling to preach the gospel. Yet the overarching um, cry of his heart is, let the Lord's will be done. So as we move forward and we think about those things, it's going to help us understand what is happening in this narrative in chapter 21, starting in verse 17. So here we go. It's verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. See, Paul had this common thing where wherever he went, he testified to what God had been doing. Testimony is a very powerful thing. It's something we don't fully understand, I think, a lot. But testimony, not just your salvation experience, but what God is doing in your everyday life is powerful. It's something that God uses to touch other people, whether they're saved or unsaved. It could bring salvation or maybe it just brings encouragement to a person. And I think as a church that that's something we need to take on is this idea of testifying to the work that God is doing. If you're saved and you have Christ in your heart, did Jesus stop working in you? I sure hope not. I hope that's not how you feel. I hope that you have a day-to-day life, that you have a testimony of what God is doing that you can share with other people. And so Paul is gladly received. All the people that he's come to Jerusalem, they're excited to see him. Although we know there's turmoil that's coming, they're excited that he's there. And so he's testifying to them one by one the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So when they heard it and they glorified God, they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come again. People are fearing for Paul. They recognize this tension and this this affliction that awaits him. And now we have these rumors that are circulating about Paul and his ministry and what he's doing. And the Jews are saying, hey, Paul's telling us not to follow the law anymore. Like he's telling us not to do what we've been told to do this whole time. And so Paul Paul is not about living for the law. The law doesn't bring life. Paul is about the one thing we talked about, and that's preaching the gospel of grace. The law doesn't bring life. The law just brings condemnation and law brings death. And so we see they're worried about what's happening with these rumors and they're worried about how they'll receive Paul because it's like, hey, you're here. They're going to know you're here eventually. So we see all these people being converted and those that are zealous for the law want to stay in the law. It's more of a cultural thing than anything else. It's what they've grown up with. It's what they know to do. And Paul's not saying that you shouldn't continue in some of these rites or rituals, the important part is they are not essential to salvation. Following the law and keeping these rituals will not bring you salvation, will not bring you peace. There are things that we can do and follow, but they are not essential to the gospel of grace. And so we see this this tension building. So the Jews are wanting to keep the law, and then the Gentiles who are getting saved, they want them to take on the law. And they even go on to say it in such a way that this falseness that uh, Paul is teaching, uh, telling them not to be circumcised. And to be honest, there's a truth to that. Back in Acts 15, we see the Council of Jerusalem gets together about this idea of circumcision for those that are coming into the faith. And they decide, you know what? It's not important. Peter stands up 
And he, he looks at them all and he tells them, um, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of those disciples? Neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we have been saved through grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So we see that idea that it's not through following the law, circumcision, or following the sacrificial things. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though they're worried about what's going to happen and they're looking at Paul's safety and they're looking at the tension of the church, we see them wanting to protect. They're seeing, we're seeing them wanting to alleviate this tension. But as we've seen already in Acts 20, 24, the affliction awaits. It's coming. So we look at it now, they're looking at Paul, and they're asking him to do something. And we look at Paul, and it's not so much they're asking him to take back what he said about living by grace alone and taking on the law, and that if he takes on the law, then all will be good. But we're really, what they're asking him is to be culturally relevant to those that are struggling. They're asking him to meet them, to bridge, so that they would not be, uh, so they wouldn't fall, so they wouldn't be tripped up by this. And we see the commitment that Paul has to the unity of the church. We see this commitment that Paul has to the gospel that he's willing to lay aside personal preferences. He's willing to do the extra mile, not to change the gospel, not to add to it, but to become what he needs to become to reach other people. We look back at 1 Corinthians 9 where we see him say, I'll, for the Jews, I'll become a Jew. For the Greeks, I'll be a Greek. For the weak, I'll be weak. For the strong, I'll be strong. Why? So that they may know the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul is about doing whatever it takes without compromising the gospel of Christ to win those that are lost. That he's willing to sacrifice, that he's willing to lay down whatever he can so that they may come to know the true gospel. So we see them come to him and they, they, they encourage Paul to do this. They say in verse 23, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So the, the, what we get away from this is we all need to shave our heads. Okay, some of you are awake. That was just a test. No, that's not the whole point. The point is, is they're asking him to come and meet those that are struggling in a way that if they see him still observing and following those things that they find culturally relevant and important without giving up the gospel, that it would somehow help them Understand that Paul's not against them. It's the same thing we do when we go into other countries or other cultures when we learn their language and their customs so that we can better relate to them to share the gospel. But we're not talking about is giving up the essentials of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We're not giving up who Jesus is. We're not giving up that it's salvation through faith alone and Christ alone and grace alone. What we're talking about is meeting a people that are immature, that they see the law as something important that they need to ensure their salvation. And so Paul is now willing to do this for them. And so this vow that they're talking about is this Nazarite vow. And what it is, if you think about the Nazarite vow, the most famous one would be Samson, right? So Samson has committed his whole life to never taking a blade to his hair to abstaining from strong drink, from not touching a dead corpse, 
There's all these, these rituals of part of this Nazarite vow. And some people, it would be as short as seven days. And some people, 30 days. But some, like Samson, it was a lifelong thing. But the biggest part of this, this ritual is at the end of it, it becomes very costly. And the cost comes in is that they are dedicated in the, in the temple. And they're also required to offer a year-old lamb. Um, two, actually, a ram, a basket of bread, various grains, and drink offerings. And the problem with that is that it becomes very expensive. Most people couldn't afford that, that sacrifice at the very end of it. So Paul is now saying, okay, these four men, you're asking me to basically promote them or supplement them. So I will do it with them. I will come along with them. We will go through the seven days, and I will pay their expenses to show people that I am not against the law. And so we see in verse 25, the, the council or the church is now looking at how do we respond to the Jew or the Gentiles. And verse 25 says, But as for the Gentiles who believed, we have sent them a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. See, the Gentiles came from these pagan relationships with these cults and religions. And so instead of telling them to take on law, like be circumcised and things like that, the church is saying, hey, listen, just separate yourself from those things. Separate yourself from those rituals and those pagan things that you were once a part of. And so by doing that, we now see that they're not trying to add on more like what we looked at in Acts 15 when they were talking about circumcision. Where it's like, hey, listen, we couldn't even do this. Why are we going to ask them to do it as well? So verse 26 is where Paul takes these men. So Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, specifically this would be Ephesus, seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. When we think about the temple, when we think about the inner courts, that is the holy of holies. Like that is a very important place inside the temple. And if this were, if we were to walk through this, or if you look at pictures of what the temple looked like, there would have been markers everywhere in different languages warning you of where these places are prohibited for Gentiles to be able to walk into. So for Paul to have actually done this, which is what they're accusing him of, would have been a big deal. He would have defiled this. And I feel like if you're Jewish, that there's kind of a pride and an arrogance that, hey, we have the Holy of Holies. We have the temple. We don't want, to, we don't want the Gentiles in there messing it all up. And so they bring this false accusation against him and saying, hey, listen, he's brought in a Greek into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And so we see this uprising coming up against him again with these false rumors. And we see the suffering that has been inevitable coming. For they had previously seen Trophimus with the, the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. They're, they're closing off the temple now. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the court that all Jerusalem was in confusion. 
he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and inquired who he was and what he had done. Can you imagine just going about your daily life and all of a sudden a whole city coming against you? Empathize with Paul for a moment. How scary it would be to have thousands of people falsely accuse you and drag you out and begin to beat you for something you did not do. We're not looking at Paul's sins being uh, punished by the people. We're, we're seeing a false accusation coming against Paul. And so these people have come together and they've riled up a whole city. When we think of Jerusalem, we're not thinking about some podunk town. We're talking about a major metropolis for that whole city to be raised up, that they send centurions to come break it up, almost like martial law. And the kicker that's interesting is they arrest Paul, the one getting beating up. How does that sound fair? It doesn't sound fair at all. And so we see Paul being beaten up, and here's where the prophecy comes true, is the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he had actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying away with him. Do we not see kind of a parallel when Christ was taken and they brought him before the mob and they gave him the choice of Barabbas or Christ, and they said, away with him, crucify him. We don't want him. Give us the murderer, crucify him. This, this crowd following Paul was not, take him away. They were saying, kill him. They're saying, we don't want him. And so we see the severity of what has come to take place of this, this affliction that await has now arrived. And I'll be honest with you, if I'm Paul, there's a lot going through my mind right now because there's so many things that Paul has gone through in his ministries. Like I said, he's been in prison, he's been beaten, he's been run out of cities, he's tired, I assume, from all the traveling. He's given his life to the Lord. I think in my weakness that there would be a little element of me saying, why do I deserve this? Did I not do what you asked of me, Lord? Like, have I not already paid enough? Am I not good enough that I should be spared this pain to have thousands of people attack me and drag me out? And not only that, the victim being arrested and being hauled off as the crowds scream out, kill him. In my flesh, I think I would struggle a lot with saying, where are you, Lord? But we see here with Paul is that even back in verse 22 and 24 of chapter 20, he said, I consider my life not of anything of value. See, Paul wasn't wrapped up with the things here on earth. Paul was looking beyond these things. This was not Paul's sins. This was the sins of other people causing suffering. See, sin and suffering go hand in hand, Right? Whether it's your sin that causes suffering for you and others or somebody else's sin that causes suffering for you and others. Or it's the general sin of the fallen nature of Adam that we live in a fallen world that there is suffering. 
in our American Western ideology, suffering doesn't have a good place. To be honest, we, we look at this idea of when suffering arises, we must do everything possible to get away from it. Think about how we market things and why we buy certain things. Like, you know, <laughs> riding lawnmower is awesome because push mowing is awful. Right? It's hot. We freak out when the AC doesn't work in our cars. And then the worst one is when the window then won't work. We think we're being persecuted. There's this idea and this philosophy of hedonism, which is we, we must seek after pleasure and we must seek after good things and we must avoid suffering or dislike of any kind at any cost. And there's a problem with that view of, of life is then it messes up the gospel. It, it really distorts what is really true. And we probably aren't familiar with this word of hedonism, but it's the American dream, really. I want to be paid more and work less, retire early, vacation, build a nice house, somebody else mows my yard. So we look at this American dream, but it's contrary to what God has for us. Because what we see with Paul is that he's not storing up things here on earth. And one of the reasons hedonism or this American dream doesn't work is because Jesus tells us in John 16 that I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Basically what he's saying is you're going to face suffering. You're going to face afflictions and opposition, whether from your sin, somebody else's sin, or just the fallen world. But he says, but have peace and know, take these words, I have overcome the world, that even in the midst of suffering, you may have peace. Even in the midst of suffering, my will and my purpose is being worked out, that we do not have to worry or be concerned about these things. And what I said, the other part was this, this, having this idea of hedonism or American dream is more devastating because it lays this foundation that we build our gospel upon and it makes this really bizarre, messed up view of what truly is. Consider when um, the psalmist writes in 119, or Psalms 119 and specifically in verse 67, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, but that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. See, God uses this tension. He uses this suffering. He uses this affliction for a good purpose. You see, when we take the first point of moving beyond um, having this American dream or when we really hold on to that, the suffering in the Bible typically points us to a person, at least the believer's. The believers are being redeemed from all suffering as they learn to reset and be transformed by the power offered in the gospel. And the central person is always going to be Christ. Salvation is not found in things like self-righteousness or law. Because, to be honest, the self-righteousness and the law is what rose up the mob against Paul that day. Self-righteousness and law is what rose up the people against Christ that day. We can't fully understand what truly is when our focus is on what is on this earth. What is, uh, what is important is what Paul points to us in Colossians 3. Paul captures a proper worldview of living for Christ. 
in a fallen world when he writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. As we wrap up and close and the band comes up here, let's think about this idea that it's not about these things that are on earth. It's about the things that are above. Throughout Scripture, we're reminded constantly of Ecclesiastes that everything under the sun is vanity. It doesn't matter. There's nothing new. There's nothing special. It is all vanity. And what, excuse me, what we finally get to is when he says we need to get over the sun, the things that are above, the things that are not of this world. We look at the Gospels when it says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because that's where rust, rust and moths steal and destroy. When we look at this idea of the Gospel, the Gospel takes us above what is here on earth, the suffering. The Gospel takes us to what's important, what truly is. And for those who've been raised with Christ, I mean, those who have shown and exhibited a saving faith in Christ, those of us that must live in a reference to things that are above and not things that are here on earth. When the things on earth begin to take precedent, as a person approaches his or her suffering this way, then Christian existence as it is intended begins to disintegrate into something else. We get wrapped up in this fallen world and it blinds us to the things of God when we are not looking at things that are above which is Christ. See, the suffering of Paul didn't come because of something he did. It was something that was inevitably going to happen because God has been working in suffering from the very beginning. When we look at the church, when it first started in Jerusalem, he used persecution to spread the gospel, to move it out into the other parts. We look at all those scriptural references of the circumcision. We look at Paul and what he's wanting to do and his main purpose. It's, it's the gospel of the grace of God. And that is his only desire. But God uses suffering to promote his will. To have his church be healthy and move forward. If we're going to be a church that's unstoppable. If we're going to be a people that are on a mission. Then we need to be a people who are willing to suffer for the gospel. Now, we don't live in a, a country that we have to fear being imprisoned or being put in jail for living out our faith. But God is calling all of us to walk through some sort of suffering. Maybe it's a personal preference. Maybe it's someone else's sin. Maybe it's your sin. But God has a purpose. And his purpose is for you to know and be driven to the person of Christ. And that is the gospel. One of the things that Paul really helps us with is that what truly is is a God who is faithful to complete his perfect work in all things. We see that in Romans 8. That in all things he's going to do his will, even in suffering. And all Paul could respond to, if you look at Romans 8, 31, is if God be for us, who can be against us? Let's be a church that looks above and not a church that's looking at the things of this earth. As Jason begins to lead us and we come into a time of response, if you've never experienced 
or known what the true gospel is, we would love to meet with you and talk with you about that. We have prayer partners at the back who would love to pray with you and explain what it means to have a relationship with Christ. If you're going through a tough time right now of suffering and you don't fully understand it or don't know how to deal with it or your temptation is to run from it, we would love to meet with you and talk and pray with you through that and see what God's purpose is for that. Maybe some of you here, God has revealed a suffering in your life that he wants you to embrace and not move away from because that suffering has a purpose and that is to drive you to him. So, so instead of running from that suffering, let's run to him instead. And so as we take a time of response and prayer and worship, I pray that we'd be encouraged by what we saw with Paul and his suffering, that it was for the gospel and that God's will is perfect and will be done. Let's stand and let's sing.